A lot of the early studies that were done on the bacteria that are found in the vagina, they did sort of a biased sampling. They tended to study women who were white and not women of color, for example. And so we did a study funded by the National Institutes of Health in which we collected samples from 400 different women and they were from four different ethnic groups. There were black women, Hispanic women, Asian women, and white women. And we wanted to see how much variation was there in the kinds of bacteria you find within each one of those demographic groups, but also between those groups. And what we found is there were five different kinds of communities that we could identify. That right there sort of debunked a long held idea that most women had pretty much the same kinds of bacteria and they didn't really change over time. And it didn't matter what your ethnicity was. And it turns out that all those things aren't true. Meet Larry Forney, a university distinguished professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Idaho. There are still many unanswered questions about female reproductive health, including understanding the community of microbes that live in the vagina. Through Larry's work, scientists are even starting to question whether what they consider a healthy vaginal microbiome can be easily defined. Welcome, everyone, to The Vandal Theory. Hi, everyone. My name is Lee Cooper, and I'm a science writer here at the University of Idaho, and your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research at U of I. Throughout the fourth season of the podcast, which we're recording and producing remotely, We'll talk to U of I researchers about questions they want to answer, problems they want to solve, and what gets them excited about their research. Larry and I discussed how the female vaginal microbiome varies among women, influences the spread of STDs, and affects the risk of preterm birth. Hey, Larry. Thank you so much for coming on The Vandal Theory today. Uh, Can you introduce yourself to everyone real quick? Uh, Yes. My name's Larry Forney, and I'm a professor in the Department of Biological Sciences here at the University of Idaho. And you actually study the vaginal microbiome. So first off, can we just define what that is? Uh, Sure. What it is, is all the bacteria that live in and on the human body. And so that comes as a surprise to many people that there are bacteria everywhere that you look on the human body. And so we study what they do in terms of protecting against infection and a number of other things to try to understand how this symbiosis between bacteria and humans has developed and serves as well every day of our lives. And I would think that uh, when it comes to the importance of studying this for the vaginal microbiome, you, you were saying has to do with infection and, and things like that. I would guess that that really gets into some of the importance of why studying this is so important? Well, if we, if we step back a second, the, we can talk about the bacteria that are normally present. And to many people, when you think of bacteria, you think of what are called germs, which implies that they're necessarily not good for you. But a lot of the bacteria that live on your body are in fact very beneficial, if for no other reason is that they often help prevent infections. And that's particularly important in some cases. And one of those is the vaginal microbiome where there are a number of uh, high numbers of bacteria that reside in the vagina and they serve a number of functions, most of them beneficial to us. So how did you get into studying this? Well, in a roundabout way, in my past, I'm a microbial ecologist and so I've studied bacterial communities in everything from wastewater to deep ocean seeps to the Arctic to activated sludge in lots and lots of places. And I was retained by Procter & Gamble to serve as a consultant. 
And they had funded some research by investigators from various universities, and they asked me to sit in and to give some commentary and some assistance if I could. And I was surprised that the people that were there in this meeting, they were very focused on diseases, and in particular, toxic shock syndrome, which is caused by a bacterium called Staphylococcus aureus. And it can be lethal. And as you can put the two together, Procter & Gamble has a vested interest in preventing and avoiding things like toxic shock syndrome. And, and what I learned from that was that the focus was always on disease and not on health. And so I did ask the question, so how, what do we know about the bacteria that are found in healthy women? Not the ones that have infections, but in healthy women. And much to my surprise, the answer was not very much. Lots of blank stares around the room. Yes. Yeah. It's really a, sort of a disease focus, which is what people do as a microbiologist. <laughs> they tend to study disease-causing organisms. But in this case, we were interested in knowing what were the roles of the bacteria in terms of preventing disease and what kinds of organisms do you find in healthy individuals and and exactly how does this work to maintain health and to prevent infections. And so that launched me into studying the vaginal microbiome, which was, you know, if you would have asked me before that, you know, if I was ever going to study the vaginal microbiome or any bacteria or diseases that involve women's health, I would have said, no, I study soils and activated sludge and fermentations and bioremediation and other things like that, but not bacteria and human hosts. But that's been a very productive, I guess now a little bit more than 15 years in which we've studied the healthy vaginal microbiome and tried to understand how it protects against infection and when it actually fails to protect against infection and a lot of other things related to women's health. Uh, It's been an important and interesting journey. So one of the studies that you did looked at quite a few different women and a diversity of women. And I know things like the stomach microbiome, they're finding things like what you eat and where you live, all of that really makes the stomach microbiome vary. Were you finding the same thing, different things for the vaginal microbiome? Are they all the same everywhere or is it different? The short answer is that they're different, but I need to back up and explain a few things. One of them is that that the kinds of communities that are present vary depending upon the stage in a woman's life. And so from birth to their first menses, uh, there are certain kinds of bacteria. And then hormones take over a bit and seem to drive the community in a different way so that women who are of reproductive age um, have yet another set of communities. And then finally, there's menopause in which it changes again. But you mentioned the study that we did, a lot of the early studies that were done on the bacteria that are found in the vagina, they did sort of a biased sampling. They tended to study women who were white and not women of color, for example. And so we did a study funded by the National Institutes of Health in which we collected samples from 400 different women, and they were from four different ethnic groups. There were black women, Hispanic women, Asian women, and white women. And we wanted to see how much variation was there in the kinds of bacteria you find within each one of those demographic groups, but also between those groups. And what we found is there were five different kinds of communities that we could identify. That right there sort of debunked a long-held idea that most women had pretty much the same kinds of bacteria and they didn't really change over time. And it didn't matter what your ethnicity was. And it turns out that all those things aren't true. It does matter what your ethnicity is. There are five different kinds of communities, not just one. I mentioned over the lifespan how it can change. And so there are a lot of differences that 
I think were not anticipated and we're still trying to unravel why those differences exist. There are some clues that are involved. Um, when you mentioned the case of the gut microbiome or the stomach microbiome, uh, those are influenced by behaviors and practices and diet mm-hmm. for reasons that are obvious, right? Then with the gut microbiome, it certainly is influenced by what kinds of things you eat. The vaginal microbiome is peculiar or interesting in a, in a way that you, you might not be aware of, and that's that there's 100 million bacteria in one milliliter of vaginal secretions. So that's 100 million bacteria per mil. So we're not talking about the occasional bacterium. We're talking about a very robust community, very diverse in terms of the bacteria that are present. And to find out that it varies between women and within ethnic groups and over a lifespan is currently what we're trying to understand. And, And it's Interesting things to think about is that the host, in this case, plays a very important role in this symbiosis because all the nutrients that the bacteria need to grow are actually provided by the host. And if if you think about that, there's no exogenous input of nutrients into the vagina. They're all produced by the host and used by these bacteria to continue to replicate over time. And so it's been quite an interesting set of studies that we've done like with these five community types that we see, that those studies have now been done in various countries by various groups of investigators. And it appears to be globally true that these five community types vary. And so we're looking at those five community types and trying to see if they differ in their ability to protect against infection, or if they differ in their ability to prevent preterm birth, to prevent sexually transmitted infections, cervical cancer, a number of different things that the body normally is able to defend against, but sometimes things break down and then you have diseases. And we're trying to understand that entire spectrum of topics. So it sounds like at this point, it's unclear whether these five sort of different types of communities, like one would be healthier or not. That's unknown at this point. Well, no, it is It is known, but it's known in a slightly different way. I mean, people will often say, which of these kinds of communities are healthy? And that's not quite the way that we think about it. We think about risk to disease. Okay. But to talk about a particular woman's community as something that is unhealthy, it's not the right way to think about it. Okay. It's not a matter of health and non-health. It's a matter of how well do the different community types work to maintain health as opposed to cause disease. And it gets a little bit more interesting just to explain this a bit further. As I said, there are five different kinds of community types and four of the five have something very important in common. And that's that there are bacteria called lactobacillus, which we know about from probiotics and from yogurt and from other kinds of fermentation products that are made. But four of those community types are actually dominated by different species of lactobacillus. But the fifth one is a mystery. The fifth one, those communities are not dominated by lactobacillus, and they're found more often in women of color, but also in Asian and white women, but just not as often. And it's been associated with an elevated risk to almost every bad thing you can think of. It's an increased risk to sexually transmitted infections, to preterm birth, to yeast infections. I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's the most frail of the five and that it seems to be the most easily upset. And when it's upset, it loses the ability to protect against infection. Uh, Do you guys have any uh, ideas yet on what causes one woman to have community A versus B? Well, we 
We do, and I alluded to it a little bit earlier, and that's that I personally think that it's going to be driven by host physiology. And it's because the host is the one that's producing the nutrients that support the bacteria. Mm. So as you can easily imagine, these bacteria are constantly being shed from the vagina, right, in vaginal secretions. And so they have to be replaced, which means that there has to be growth of the bacteria to maintain these numbers quite high, actually. So that's one thing is that we think it's going to be partly related or maybe an important factor will be the host genetics and the host physiology and perhaps host diet to the extent that it changes the composition of vaginal secretions. That too could be important. But as if all this weren't enough to digest, all the five communities vary over time. So within a single woman, it can be, we number them one, one, two, three, four, five. A woman might have a community that we would label as community number one. And then for reasons that we don't understand, it shifts, it changes in composition. And now maybe it's community type number three that's most common. And sometimes in some women, it'll go from community types one, two, three, and four, the, the, the ones that have high proportions of lactobacillus into that fifth type where lactobacillus isn't common. So that means there are periods of time when a woman's risk to disease is elevated because the composition of the community has changed. But then it changes back. And these changes can occur quite rapidly, like within 24 or 48 hours. Oh, wow. It'll be of one particular composition. And then you look after three days and it's back to where it was or it's someplace else in terms of the kinds of communities that are present. And in some women, it'll be stable over time and will hardly vary. We can say it's like community state type one, and it seems to be that way every day that you check. And the longest we've sampled women were for a total of daily samples for 10 weeks. And so that's over a 70-day period. And other times, you'll find ones that don't seem to settle down at all. They're forever changing one way or the other. And as I said, and I'm going to put two pieces of this puzzle together, there's one kind of community that is associated with high risk. And so women go into this region of high risk, and then they come back out into a something that is more resistant to infectious disease, for example. Call that windows of risk, right? The windows open and you have elevated risk and then they close and you have reduced risk. And trying to understand how that happens, why it happens, could be important because imagine that you could go back to being a microbial ecologist and you say, I want to manage this microbial ecosystem. Uh, if we knew how what was driving it, if we knew how it functioned, then we could begin to think of how to manage it so that you had community types where those that reduce risk to the greatest extent. Well, so let's talk a little bit more about the risk. I know you have done studies on chlamydia, which has actually been going up over the last sort of decade. Can you talk to me about what you found in looking at uh, the type of vaginal microbiome and its ability to protect against chlamydia? Well, it's probably a, a, a real case study for what I was just describing, and that is that if women who have communities that are not dominated by lactobacillus species tend to be at highest risk for chlamydial infections, and it's a, a very strong difference. And so it's sort of typical for what you might expect. It's the same for Neisseria gonorrhea, and it's true for a number of other bacterial infections that occur. So what is it actually doing? Is the bacteria breaking down the chlamydia or, or like acting as a shield? What's going on? We don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the bottom line. We, we don't know. 
what we have is the statistical association. If you have this certain kind of community, then your risk goes up. And you say, well, why is it low risk? And why is it high risk? And again, how can you manage this so that you reduce the overall risk to disease? And that's where the field is right now, is trying to understand exactly that. So we're doing studies uh, currently where we actually grow vaginal epithelial cells, their primary cell lines from women. And we're doing challenge studies, basically, where you put in different bacteria, you challenge it then with a pathogen, and you see whether or not the numbers of the pathogen go up or down. You know, are they affected by the presence of bacteria that are normally there? But now we can sort of take it apart, right? We can try just certain members of the community and see if any of these specific members make a difference or combinations of those bacteria. One fact that I didn't mention earlier, but I think it should be important for people to understand is that in addition to the high numbers of bacteria that are present in healthy women, this 100 million bacteria per mil, it's also very diverse. And this will really surprise people, but there's between two and 400 species of bacteria in the vagina. So we have to sort of pick this apart a little bit and see the ones that are numerically dominant, what are the dominant things that they do to be successful and to exclude pathogens. Oh, wow. Well, so let's shift gears just a teeny bit, not completely off topic. You've also done work using vaginal secretions and and the microbiome to look at risk factors for preterm birth. Can you talk to me about, with that study, what question you were trying to get at, and then we can get into what you found? Yeah, preterm birth is associated with a shorter cervix. And so if you want to assess a woman's risk to preterm birth, you can actually measure the cervical length and identify women whose cervix is short versus long. In a modern, a well-equipped hospital that would be done by a transvaginal ultrasound, and they would go in and image it and measure it and decide uh, if this person was at risk, and that might dictate certain things during the pregnancy to try to minimize that risk or at least be prepared for that eventuality. But when you go to more rural areas, they don't happen to have all this fancy equipment that would allow you to go in and actually measure it. So we were interested in seeing if there were other factors that we could measure that might be associated with an increased risk to preterm birth. And this was a study funded by the Gates Foundation and done in Brazil. And we were working in the rural areas of Brazil where many of the samples were taken. And we wanted to see if there were things that we could measure easily and inexpensively that wouldn't require very expensive equipment. Mm -hmm. And so the local you know, physician could do this and identify women who were at risk to preterm birth. And so that's actually the study we did was to try to identify those factors that were associated with preterm birth and then to show that they could, with some reasonable certainty, predict women who would have an increased risk to, to the preterm birth. So that was the purpose of that, was really not to come up with some kind of a definitive end-all diagnostic, but to come up with something that was practical in the field. Sure little more indicative than absolute. So then what did you end up finding? Well, there was a very limited number of factors that when taken in combination, did a fair job of predicting preterm birth. So it's very hopeful now that that will be incorporated into modern practices in the rural areas of various countries. And I think you ended up finding that it was one protein and one lactic acid where by measuring those levels, you were able to at least with relatively good certainty, point to high-risk pregnancies? 
Yeah, it doesn't. In these things, they don't explain why. They're, they're just correlates. Mm -hmm. And so there were a few different things that were predictive. One of them was the presence of D-lactic acid as opposed to L-lactic acid, a different isomer. Uh, a protein, TIMP1, which is made by uh, the host, that's a protease. And I, I think that's important for implantation, I believe. Uh -huh. And so it was just a very short list of things that when taken together worked well to predict preterm birth. Well, uh, we're getting a little close to the end here, but any last things we should know about the vaginal microbiome or the next big questions that need to get solved in this area? Well, I, there, there's one thing that I try to emphasize whenever I talk about this, and that's that when you talk about normal and healthy, and you're talking about the vaginal microbiome, there is no single normal and healthy. You can have large differences, and this we've talked about. You can have large differences in the kinds of bacteria, the abundance of the bacteria, the dynamics of these communities. And I think that one take home is that every woman is different in terms of their vaginal microbiome and they need to celebrate those differences as opposed to be concerned about why they don't have exactly the same system as maybe their sister, maybe their roommate, maybe their aunt. It's very hard to make any predictions at all and say, well, this is what's true for women. And you go, no, some women, yes, but for others, not. And so respecting that diversity and not being overly concerned with differences that exist, I mean, differences per se are not necessarily bad. And in fact, that's what's normal, are the differences that you see when you start studying these communities in women. All right. Well, Larry, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks, Lee. It's been a lot of fun. If you found the intricacies of Larry's work interesting, I think you'll enjoy learning about a few other U of I research projects. Two students, Nick Pencarry and Pike Lund Anderson, have received Goldwater Scholarship Awards for the 2021-22 academic year from the Barry Goldwater Scholarship and Excellence in Education Foundation. Nick researches tendon tissue engineering, and Pike investigates the susceptibility of animal species to COVID-19. Senior Madison Thurston worked with the Moscow-based nonprofit Terrographics International Foundation on a geospatial analysis of a 2010 lead poisoning event in Nigeria. The study demonstrated that neighborhood size, variation in lead levels, and the location of lead waste impacts a child's exposure, which can result in lead poisonings. Beer brewing uses the hops flour, while the remaining plant is often mulched into compost. But what if the hops waste could be used for something else? Agricultural and life sciences student Maggie Z has already figured out how to process the hops leftovers into paper and is working on making it into a textile. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to The Vandal Theory. We hope you'll visit our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory, if you'd like more details about Larry's research. While you're there, you can also read our show notes and email me with comments. And please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. And we'd really love it if you'd rate and review us, too. We hope you'll let any friends and family interested in science and research know about the podcast. Help us tell our story. I'm Lee Cooper, and thanks for joining us.